good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, really, what we're going to deal with this morning, I think, is a really important topic. It's a very important crux, I think, of the entire passage of Romans, because really what we're dealing with is somewhat of a transitionary point. We've been dealing with, really, I think maybe the best way to say it is a redemption accomplished. We have, over the past few months, almost a year now, um, looked into just the work of Christ and his accomplishment of redemption. We see that he is the one who justifies, that he is the one who redeems, that he is the one who propitiates, essentially the wrath of God. And here we have this language that really is, you see this conclusion that comes in Romans chapter five, that all of this has been applied to me. And now that we're no longer under the reign of sin and death, but we're under the reign of grace, how then, how then am I to live? How should I then continue in this life that Christ has provided for me? And so today we are not so much dealing with the accomplishment of redemption that is all and completely on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has indeed accomplished it perfectly, but instead it seems that we are dealing with perhaps a separate category, and I think a rather helpful one. It is the application of this redemption. And one of the simplest ways for us to understand the work of Christ and really our own salvation is kind of twofold. We think about what is necessary to be done for us to be saved. We refer to that as redemption accomplished. And all of that was completely and totally done in Jesus Christ. When he said it is finished, essentially what he is saying is all that is necessary to be accomplished for redemption has been accomplished in Christ. But there is also this understanding of a redemption that is applied. And that is something that takes place in the life of an individual as they see Jesus for who he is, as they find in him their all in all, and as they believe on him as Lord, God, and King. And so as we look at this particular text, really what we are flowing from is this previous question that was asked in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and it will give us somewhat of the background that we need to see the conclusion in verses 3 through 4. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it any longer? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help us this morning to rejoice in the realities that we have been buried with Christ? Lord, as we come and we've seen all of the beauties of Romans 1 through 5, and we come to this moment, we see the redemption has been accomplished. And as we see it applied to our own lives, would you spur us along to deeper love? Lord, would we see ourselves in Christ crucified? Would we see ourselves in Christ buried? Would you show us in Christ resurrected the new life that you have provided for us in him? 
So Father, we ask all of these things in Christ because it is only in him and through him that we have access to the Father. And so Father, would you make much of your son and make much of the spirit and make much of yourself this moment. So in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, going back to that concept of redemption accomplished. Redemption accomplished is essentially what lands you at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is redemption accomplished. It is true, brothers and sisters, that if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no means of you out the grace of God, because brothers and sisters, there's always more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. But as we see in that and we relish it, we delight in it, there is this question that we dealt with last week, which is in light of that, in light of the redemption that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course, the answer to this is by no means. And then he goes forward and he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so we don't go on saying that grace may increase, but there is this really important question, and I think it is quite a lovely one. How can we who died to sin? Now, I want to take that simple phrase, died to sin, because essentially we look at this and we say, okay, I've died to sin. And I think the reasonable question to ask on the other side of that one is, how? How have I died to sin? Because essentially what's being laid out in Romans 6 is I am free from the snare of sin. It no longer has dominion and rule over me. Instead, I am released from its snare. I have died to it in the truest sense of the word. And I think it is right for us to ask, how? How did we die to sin? Because I don't know about you, but first of all, I still feel the remnants of sin in me, but also I am sitting here still alive. So how have I died to sin? And Paul immediately goes into the answer to this question in verses four and following, or really verses three and following. And so what I want to do is take the time to examine what it means that we have been united with Christ, baptized into him, and ultimately the, the, the thing that is accomplished through, his, through our union with him is that we have died, we have been buried, and that we have been, and also, as we will see next week, will be raised. So let's turn our attention to the very first aspect of this. So the very first phrase that we have is in verse three, do you not know? And I want to point out this to you really quickly. Paul assumes understanding that you know that if you be in Christ, if you have been united with him, that there is something that's radically changed in your life. You are no longer what you once were. He assumes it because the gospel as rightly preached always assumes that we have been united to Jesus Christ. And we'll deal with that here in a moment. But looking at verse three again, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And I think there are really important questions that need to be asked here. First, what does, it, what does it mean by being baptized into Christ? Now, we all know that we are faithful and love Baptist doctrine, meaning that we're speaking of baptism. But brothers and sisters, we're not just speaking of immersion into waters here. We're speaking of the spiritual reality that essentially leads you to those baptismal waters. And so we're not speaking of just baptism in the sense of going under the water, but instead we are speaking of baptism as the concept of being immersed or united with an individual. Now, the reason this is so important is because the waters essentially have no power, no dominion. It communicates nothing true and accurate unless 
You are born again. It conveys that beautiful grace to the congregation as one goes under those waters. Essentially, the proclamation is, it's not the waters that I'm being united with. It's Jesus Christ who I am united with. And I'm declaring that and proclaiming it over the people. And as we come to this, what we must understand, and hopefully what we will do this day is fill those baptismal waters full so that every time you see it, dear saint, you rejoice knowing that it is not waters that people are going under, it is Christ that they are going into. And so what really does this mean? So what does it mean that we are baptized into Christ? The very first thing that we must understand is it means that we are united with him. And if you take that language of with him and you run it the entire way through Romans 6, 7, and 8, essentially what you will see is where Christ is, I am. Where Christ is, I am. And not just seemingly future or past, but past, present, future. When I go back and even as Don read uh, Matthew chapter three this morning, we see his baptism. That's him fulfilling all righteousness. And brothers and sisters, in some glorious way, I was there. Not only was I there, but we see him complete all of the perfect works that, he is, that he, God set out for him. And in those perfect works, he was doing those to fill the cup of righteousness that he would hand to me. And so what does it mean to be united with him? It means that I'm truly with him. And so all throughout Romans 6, you're gonna see this language of with him. We were buried with him. We were united with him. We were raised with him. And this is what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. And it's the reason that throughout not only this particular book, but in Ephesians as well, the language is with him and in him. We say this so frequently here. I am really not the biggest fan of the term Christian. I want to be known as one who is in Jesus Christ. I want to be known as one who is united with him. Why? Because the only true means of being a Christian is being in him, is being born into, brought into this glorious union with him. And so what we must understand is that to be with him, to be united with him in burial, to be united with him in death, and ultimately to be united with him in resurrection is not to go and take his death, his burial, and resurrection as if it were off a buffet. Instead, it is saying, I have all that is Christ. He is my great hope and joy. I am united with him. Now, the reason I bring this to your attention is because it seems as though there may be many who would say, ah, yes, I love the concept of resurrection in Jesus Christ. You don't get resurrection in Jesus Christ without Jesus Christ himself. You do not get to go and to grab these various pieces of of Christ's finished work. It is him and then his work, or it is nothing at all. The beauty of the gospel is not just that you are united to some salvific work. The beauty of the gospel is that you are united to the one who completed all that was necessary to bring about that salvific work. I am united not just to a work, but to a person. I am immersed into him. I am identified with him. I am united with him. And there are no benefits of Jesus apart from Jesus himself. All of them are found only by being united with him. Now that does lead us, I think, to a really important question. How am I in him? I mean, if all those things are true and if all the benefits of Christ are only found in Christ himself and really not even just that, but having to be united with him, how is it that I come to be united with him? And if I could perhaps go back and illustrate this from Adam, you are in Adam from the moment that you were born Your birth essentially symbolizes that this individual born dead in his trespasses and sins is born a son of Adam. How is it then, as we are united to Adam in a death like his, 
How is it that we can be united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? Brothers and sisters, it is not a difficult concept at all. Instead, it seems to be rather parallel. If you were born in Adam, you must be born again to be in Christ. This is so clear in the scriptures. And if I could give really two major points to this, the very first is found in John chapter three. What is it that Jesus says to Nicodemus? You must be born again. And when Jesus is saying you must be born again, I want us to understand that what he is echoing are the words of John in John 1, that we must be born not according to the will of man or the will of, or the, or the, will of the flesh or the will of blood. Instead, we must be born of these things by God. God brings these things about. The new birth only comes from him. And so how are we to be united with Jesus Christ? We are only to be united to Jesus Christ by the new birth. And I think Romans later on will articulate this the exact same way that the book of Galatians does. It is not not just the new birth, but it is the glorious act of God, the spirit to draw you into his family. And we refer to this often as the spirit of adoption. We are born again, most certainly. And I love the doctrine of adoption because it's so unique from our own visible representation of it. I can adopt someone into my family and I can do that and they can have the nurture that I can offer them, but they will never have my biological nature. It is not so with God. When God ransoms, when God adopts, he changes both nurture and nature. He dramatically changes the individual to where they are not called fools to say that I am a son of God. I am in Jesus Christ. My nature has been renewed. My nature has been changed. And so when the spirit of adoption grants that new birth, we go forth and we cry, Abba, Father, we belong to him. Not only do we belong to him, but in this very moment, I am seen as one who is united to the Lord Jesus Christ and that which is united to the Lord Jesus Christ may never, can never be severed. If I am in him, then all those benefits that we're gonna see here in a moment are mine. And so what must we say about this glorious union? First, we must say that it is a miraculous union. So often, brothers and sisters, we are busy looking for signs and wonders in the Christian faith. The sign and wonder of the Christian faith is that you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, who were under the headship of your father, Adam, have been ransomed by the glorious work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God has united to you, Jesus Christ. You are in him. That's the glorious, miraculous work of the Spirit of God. He gives life to dead men. He adopts rebels. He makes enemies friends. And so we see from this, this union with Christ is essentially the crux of everything that we're going to be discussing, really from this point all the way to the end of Romans 8. We are united with Christ. And if we are united to Christ, as this verse goes on to say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is a rather interesting beginning to this, I feel. Because it seems as though if you want to make clear that union with Christ is beneficial and profitable and joyous, you would immediately flow into that you are united with him in a resurrection like his. And Paul will get to that. But it seems as if some of the best news of being united with Jesus Christ is that I have been united with him, baptized ultimately into his death. Why is being baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, in particularly his death, Excellent news. What ultimately does it mean? It means that me having been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ's death, it means that in Christ, I died. Galatians 2.20, I think, makes this really clear. For some reason, we tend to skip the introduction of this verse. We always go straight to the living. 
But we must understand is that to go on to the living in Christ, we must die in him as well. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And you think to yourself, I imagine, well, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Like I, I see, like I look back into the history and I see, yes, Christ Jesus lifted up for my justification. But with the way that Paul understands this is he looks at the sinner. He looks at the one whom God redeems and he says, you, you died there. We speak of substitutionary atonement, and for some reason, we, we really downgrade the concept of substitution. The reality is that when Jesus Christ died there, you died there. The penalty ultimately was paid. And so this is really the, the beauty of this concept of dying, is that if I have been united with Jesus in his death, I am brought out from under Adam and free to belong to another. And the immediate context of this verse is rather important because if you go back up, you'll see that we were in Adam and that language of in, of in Adam flows down through that passage and ultimately leads into saying that if you were in Adam, you were ultimately under the reign of sin and death. And if you were under the reign of sin and death, death will ultimately have you. Hear me, brothers and sisters, there is no person who is in Jesus Christ today that did not die in Jesus Christ because you had to die there. Why? Because you had to die in Adam. Adam had to pay the price. We as sinners and rebels against God had to ultimately perish. I must pay the debt ultimately that is required of me to be freed from the reign of sin and death. And the beauty is, if I'm in Christ, it was paid in Christ. There is no double jeopardy here. What Jesus Christ paid on the cross, when he laid down his life for his people, he says in John 10 that he lays down his life for his sheep. The whole premise is that what Jesus is doing is ransoming to himself a people. He is freeing them from something. He is freeing them most certainly from sin. He is freeing them most certainly from the law, but he is also freeing them from the headship of Adam. He is dying the death that Adam deserved. Brothers and sisters, he died the death that we deserved in Adam. Now, the reason this is so lovely is because if I have died in Adam, then I lay there free from Adam's headship. It no longer is mine. The penalty has ultimately been paid. And if I could remind you for just a moment, what actually has to be paid for our death to be actually paid for. It's not just a temporary death. It's not a ceasing of breathing. It's eternal condemnation and punishment. And we must never demean this. When we look to the cross of Christ and we say that he died our death, we are not saying that he stopped breathing for us. We are saying that he drank the cup of God's wrath that was rightly earned by us, that he paid that debt and paid it in full. And now there is no more debt to be paid. It has indeed been accomplished. It is good news because I have died with Christ if I am united with him. Now, why ultimately is this good news for me? It is good news first and foremost because the death I deserve has ultimately been died. I know that's strange language, but I can't think of a better way to say it. There is no more death for me. Certainly, there might be, should the Lord tarry, a physical death for all of us here. But we must always understand that death in the light of Jesus Christ's death. The true separation from God has been dealt with. He has bridged that gap so perfectly that we must say that the moment that we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we began to have life and there will not be a single moment of that new life in Christ that will stop. We will enjoy life in him forever. When we stop breathing, when our heart stops beating, we have not ceased to have life in Christ. As a matter of fact, it seems as if the scripture attests, we will have all the more life on the other side of this body. And so certainly we have 
great reason for rejoicing, being united with Christ in a death like his. But we must also understand that we have great hope, great joy, great news ultimately in Jesus' death because the old man is conquered. And some of you will think this is a great reason to rejoice, and some of you perhaps not so much. But if we understood the true wickedness of sin, if you hated it as Christ hated it, the idea that that old man died with Jesus Christ, that when he was buried, he will never come out. He has died in Jesus Christ. That the sins that we have committed, that old man, that natural man, that man that is in Adam, has actually been conquered. He was nailed to the tree. And as he was nailed to the tree, he truly died there. I am freed from that old man. And perhaps it is throughout my life, I will experience deeper and deeper freedom from its power. But I know this with great certainty. Because that old man died, the consequence of sin is paid for in full. And I look forward to the day when the old man that is still lasting in me will be laid in the tomb never to be raised again. Because when I am raised, I will not be raised like Lazarus. I will be raised like the Lord Jesus Christ and that old man will taste no life ever. But the new man, the one whom God has given life to, will have life and life eternal. So it is good news because the old man is conquered. It's good news because I have died to sin. And finally, and I think best, the best news is that I am free to belong to another and that other is Jesus Christ. You see, if I am in Adam, a debt has to be paid. One has to die. And in Christ Jesus, I have died, and I am no longer under the snare and bondage of Adam. Instead, I am free to belong to another. In the, in the exact same way that when we give marriage vows, we say, till death do us part. That essentially was the ratified covenant that we had in Adam, till death do us part, and praise be to God, death came. Amen. And when death came... I died and Adam no longer is my head. And not only that, I can go into a new and better covenant, but how can I do this if I am a dead man? But the beauty is that if I have been buried with him, if I have been united with the Lord Jesus Christ, if the accomplished redemption has been applied to me by the Spirit, I am not only united with him in his death, Certainly there I die in Adam, but what walks out, what is raised, does not belong to Adam. What is raised belongs to Jesus Christ. What is raised is no longer under the headship of Adam, for the reign of sin and death has been conquered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, what it seems to be now is that I am raised ultimately into union with Christ, that I indeed from this point forward share his life. Notice what the text says again in verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. And I want you to notice that language, in order that. That's a a clause that essentially says this happened so that this could logically happen. It is the prerequisite that we die in Adam ultimately to have life in Jesus Christ. And so when we read verse four, we must understand and find ourselves rejoicing that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what does it mean that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? It means that just as I am united to Christ in his death, so too am I united to Christ in his resurrection and life. It means that the same way that my death in Adam was real and and, and true in Christ, when he died in my place, that was my death. It is also true the life that I have in him is a true and lasting life in him. In all of this, I would remind you, going all the way back to our original text, is that this is all rooted in, are you in Christ? 
Do you know him? Have you been brought into fellowship with him? Has the spirit adopted you and given you the new birth? And if so, his death is yours, his burial is yours, his resurrection is yours, and his life is yours. And so what do we see? We see ultimately there is no union with Christ in life without union of Christ in death because all those in Adam must truly die. All those in Adam must truly die. Our sins must be paid for. Our slavery must be dealt with. And ultimately, we see through Jesus Christ, we are free from that bondage. But I think the most important thing for us to understand, as often Paul does, is he lays out these, these glorious racetracks, if you will. Run from something, run to something, die to something, live to something. And in the exact same way, he takes this later on in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And that's the part that we normally skip. But then it goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And not only that, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want us to notice this thing, this so incredible moment that in death, immediately what we have is life and life everlasting. What we see in Jesus, is Jesus Christ's death is freedom from Adam ultimately to be ransomed, to, be, uh, to, to delight ourselves in the presence of Christ forevermore. So what does it mean? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Brothers and sisters, when we are raised, we are raised to belong to Jesus Christ. He is ours forevermore and we are his. The glory of this is Adam. Brothers and sisters, if you could consider for just a moment the cruel master that we sat under. Later on in Romans 6, we'll see this all the more clearly. But as you consider for a moment that cruel and wicked master, that reign of sin and death that bound you, that would not release you, that could not release you, and you could fight all you want to, but you wouldn't because you loved the master anyway. But he was cruel and wicked, and he longed nothing more. He longed for nothing more than your death. And what you ultimately have in Jesus Christ's death is that death. I am freed from it. It is no longer mine. But so often we forget in the midst of our freedom from sin that the glory of this is that we can now belong to another, a far better master, a far better groom, as Romans 7 will go on to say. Essentially what we have is freedom from Adam and life forevermore in Jesus Christ. I belong to him now. And if I belong to him now, I see that I am eternally free from death. Now let's consider this word again because we spoke of it in that moment of speaking of Jesus's death, that it's not just ceasing to breathe, it's separation. How can you be in Christ and separated from the Father? The answer is you most certainly cannot be. If you are in Christ Jesus, as we have already sung, no tongue can bid you thence depart. Why? Because if you are in Christ Jesus, you are seen as him, though most certainly not being him. You are righteous altogether. You are invited into the throne room of grace. You are encouraged to dine ultimately at the king's table. If I am in him, that means I am free from death altogether, which ultimately means that I have life and life eternal forever. Now this life, as we have spoken of so frequently, John very clearly articulates to us. It is not just life as in we still are breathing or self-aware. Instead, true life, eternal life, is that we know Jesus Christ and the Father. And what we have in being united to him is this endless flow of enjoying him, of delighting in him, of finding in him our all in all. What we ultimately see through Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection is being ransomed from death to enjoy life and life everlasting. And that life is always found in the presence of our great God and King. 
But not only is it that looking forward to moment where we look forward to the resurrection from the dead, we look forward to fellowship with him, but that life that we have is life now. You did not know him before the Spirit of God joins you to Jesus Christ. You did not know him until the Spirit of God granted you new life, new birth. John makes this so clear in John 3. You can't even see the kingdom of God. And the moment the Spirit of God came upon you, He gave you eyes to see and to behold Jesus Christ and that glorious kingdom in which He brought. And He said, live here, dwell here, delight here. The life that we have is a life that is in His presence forevermore. And it begins today. Now, not only is it we are free from death forevermore, it goes on to say that we are ultimately slaves to righteousness. And oh, how we must reclaim this word, what it means to be a slave to righteousness. Goodness, what a great master righteousness is. One that reigns over us, that rules over us, that gives us great fruit. As you go on into Romans chapter 7, we are slaves to righteousness, no longer slaves to sin and death, bearing fruit ultimately of death. Instead, we are slaves to righteousness, meaning that by the Spirit of God, we go forth living unto Him. We go forth delighting that we have life in Him and life in Him forever. And we go forth producing righteousness, bearing fruit ultimately and keeping with repentance. And that always leads to deeper sanctification. I love this language because ultimately, Ultimately, what it means is if I am a slave to righteousness, it means that ever constantly in my life, I will grow more and more and more aware and and be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He is always working to give me, to lavish on me life and more life. And if we could understand sanctification in that way, it is as if all of this glorious work of Christ is accomplished, the Spirit applies it at justification, and then He ever constantly lavishes it on us in our life. As we are slaves to righteousness, sanctification is birthed. And the end conclusion of sanctification ultimately is this, that the fruit leading to sanctification ends in eternal life. When we are ransomed from death, we enjoy life. When we enjoy life, essentially the conclusion is that we enjoy life all the more. It is this endless and glorious cycle of freedom from death, enjoying life, continue to enjoy life. To be free from the reign of sin and death means to be born into and live under the reign of grace. And that grace is always lavishing life in Christ. Just as Adam is the federal head of death, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the federal head of life. And he lavishes it on his people day in and day out. Certainly by various means, by the word, by the spirit, all of these things are laid on us by the glorious work of the spirit. And so what must we see? We must see that freedom from Adam's snare, freedom from sin and death, freedom ultimately from Adam means that we must be united with Jesus Christ in his death. And we must see him in his death and say, praise be to God, there I died. We can say with Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, meaning that old requirements, that, that sin, that death that reigned over me, it no longer has dominion. And since it no longer has dominion, I have, I now can belong to another. And if I can belong to another, I must be raised. But praise be to God, I am raised through Jesus Christ's resurrection. And I am not just raised to wander around aimless, aimlessly or to go back to my former master. Instead, I am raised to belong to Jesus Christ forevermore, enjoying that eternal life that he has purchased. And so what do we see ultimately from this text? The great picture is this. I was in Adam. In Christ, I died to Adam. I am in Christ now, and now I live to Christ forever. And it really is this 
simple phrase, verses three and four, is a summation of really the entire argument of Romans chapter six and following. But there is another important thing that we must see here. First, I hope that we have tasted that union with Christ is a most precious doctrine. It is a doctrine that essentially is the the crux of the gospel. Are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ, then all of these things are yours. But union with Christ is essentially this. Union with Christ in his death frees you from Adam. Union with Christ puts to death that old wicked man. Union with Christ in his resurrection creates a new man, that blessed verse that we speak of so often, that the old is gone, the new has come. I am a new creation if I be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, in this union, union with Christ in his life animates your mortal bodies. Union with Christ produces something here and now. I fear that one of the greatest lies of the American church today is that you can have Jesus and no change wrought in your life at all. This is the furthest thing from the truth. If you are united with Jesus Christ in a burial and a death like his, if you are united with Jesus Christ in a resurrection like his, then all of the glorious benefits of the Spirit are yours. And brothers and sisters, the Spirit is not so weak as to not produce fruit in you. The Spirit of God gives this. He gives life and he animates our mortal bodies. We experience this here and now. Union with Christ essentially is the real culmination of justification by faith alone. You are in him. Now, I do think it's rather important that we pay very close attention to the language that Paul has chosen here. He has certainly laid out to us the concept of union, but he has chosen a very specific word for us to understand this by. Just reading back through it, you will notice in verse Three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, one of the things that I feel that we are often guilty of is we have signs and symbols that we love and we don't really know what they mean. When we come and when we celebrate baptism, essentially the reason that we go to this text so frequently is because it's the language that Paul uses to illustrate exactly what we are doing when we come to observe baptism. Now, if I could for just a moment, I want to walk us through this rather quickly to help us understand what we are doing when we come to the baptismal waters. And for some of you here, you are considering your baptism that you had when you were converted earlier on in life and others perhaps are here and you have been born again. The word of God has taken root in your life. You've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a very clear command in the scriptures that you would come and be baptized, that you would obey him in that sense. But I want you to understand what you testify to, what Paul is arguing here, what you testify to when you are baptized. The very first thing that we testify to is that in baptism, we testify that we deserve death. All of this becomes rather clear and rather, um, rather about ourselves, essentially, like we're looking into our own life. What are we saying when we come to the baptismal waters? The very first thing that we are saying is, I am an Adam and I deserve to die. I want you to even consider the motions of baptism. The motions of baptism, the very first thing that takes place is that you go under those waters. And as we have already heard spoken of earlier, you do not deserve to come out of those waters. The same way that Adam does not deserve to come out of the grave. The same way that we do not deserve life and life eternal. It makes perfect sense that I, that I am buried and that I am dead. It makes no sense that I come out. Because scripture is abundantly clear. Actually, the end of Romans 6 is this conclusion. For the wages of sin is death. And I'm sitting here reading this verse and asking myself, well, why then have you given me life? Because I'm no longer in Adam. 
When I go under those waters in baptism, I am essentially testifying that those who are in Adam deserve death. I am in Adam and thus I deserve to die. And never should any soul come out of those baptismal waters. But not only are we buried with him in a death like his, we go on to testify in this baptism that we testify that we have been united with Christ in his death, even as we have already heard read again. In Matthew chapter three, when we see Jesus go under those waters, he is the only man who has ever been baptized that deserved to come out. He's the only one. All of the others are in Adam and they deserve to die. They deserve to stay there. But when we see the Lord Jesus Christ go under those waters, we are given the great confidence that if we are in him, then we will come out. Why? Because I'm not in Adam. I'm in Christ. There is my federal head. See him baptized there in the Jordan. He comes out. And if he comes out, I can go and I can be buried with him. I can see that old man be washed away. I can see that death actually occur. But not only do we see in baptism that we are united with Christ in his death, that we have been buried with him, but we also see that if we are in Christ Jesus, we go forth testifying that though we are dead, though we deserve to die, we will be raised by the glory of the Father. You come out because brothers and sisters, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you deserve to come out. And that absolutely is stunning to me. The same way that we say you deserve, if you are an Adam, if you have rebelled against the, the, the glory of God, then you deserve to stay under those waters. But if you are identified, if you are baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are treated and rightly so as a saint because God's finished work in Christ has been applied to you by the Spirit. You must come out. And not only must you come out, you must go on living to His glory. Now, I want to speak to this phrase for just a moment. It says this, this, this language is actually rather unique here. It's the only time we kind of see this structure. It says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, notice this, by the glory of the Father. I mean, it's spoken of really throughout the scriptures that Jesus is raised by the Father, that Jesus later on in Romans 8 is raised by the Spirit, and that Jesus raised himself from the dead. That is a Trinitarian action that raises Christ from the dead. But what's most interesting here is that Paul's desire is to emphasize the Father's role in resurrection. Why? He resurrects Jesus by the glory of the Father. And here's the strange language. Just as. This word, just as, means just that. Just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, so too might we who are in Him be raised by the glory of the Father. The reason we speak of the Spirit of God's work in raising sinners from the dead is because it is the glory of the Father that is executed in that. That the glory of the Father, not only just the power and dominion and authority and beauty, but I think one of the sweeter ways to understand this is His goodwill. He raises ruined sinners who were fallen in Adam. He crucifies them in Christ. He buries them in Christ. And he raises them in good will to live in front of him. The really crux of this is toward the end of this really lovely passage in Romans 6 and verse 10. And I think here we have this beautiful summary. It says this, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What is that motion of baptism? That motion of baptism is a visible representation of all that takes place in the heart of the born again believer. 
If you be united with Christ, you go under those waters, you profess, I died and I deserve to die. You profess that I deserve to stay under these waters, but you also profess when you come out that if I live, I live unto God forevermore. I am no longer in my father, Adam. I am a new creation. I have been born again. I have been brought from these waters to live unto God forevermore. And how can we have confidence in this? Because Christ lives to God forever. And if I am in him in his death, if I, am in him, if I am in him in his burial, if I am in him in his resurrection, then to this day, brothers and sisters, I am in him in his life. His life is mine. Not because we deserve it, but because God is infinite in grace and mercy. He accomplished all that was necessary for redemption. And praise be to God, he applied it at the new birth. Let's pray together.